0: All right. Well, we're at, All right, we're actually recording you where I can hear you. So this will be awesome. Uh, change in, oh. something new, something new this week. We figured we'd try that. <laughs> That's all right. Every writer knows that the best conversations about writing don't happen in classrooms or symposia or any other fancy artisanal setting. They happen at the bar, usually after deadline. That's the vibe we're going for here. This is The Other 51. I'm Dr. Brian Moritz. This week's guest is Bucky Gleason from Buffalo Maven. Bucky Gleason, welcome back to The Other 51. Thanks for joining me again. Yeah, no problem, Brian. How's it going? It's going good. And uh, should I say again, because uh, people listening don't know this, but about two weeks ago, we recorded what what I think we can safely call as the best podcast in the history of the medium. Right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's a shame that nobody's going to hear it. It was like it's like my three best columns that I ever wrote. You know, they just. They never saw the light of day. It, it, I deleted them and never to be read.
0: It, it, it is, you know, not to oversell it, but it was like Abbey Road and Sergeant Pepper put together in podcast form. But, um, <laughs> but uh, the, the 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 when I played it for somebody and they said it was unintelligible audio, I knew we had screwed up. So I'm glad you're back to uh, to uh, to do a kind of a makeup, kind of a double header, a rain delay double header, so to speak. Sounds good. I just hope that it
1: wasn't just me that was unintelligible.
0: <laughs> no, you, 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 you. You're, what you said was great. You just literally couldn't hear you, which was part pro, yeah. probably problematic. It was so. lack of intelli- sure wasn't a lack of intelligence on my part. No, definitely not. But uh, but it worked out because last time we talked, we were we were lamenting the 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 Bills, the Buffalo Bills opening day loss, and now they're headed for the Super Bowl. So uh, uh, a serious turn for. Uh, for the Bills coming off of Sunday's win at Minnesota. I'm wondering what it's like for you writing about this team and kind of following this team along. I mean, what's it like, that that seesaw from Weeks 1 and Weeks 2 to what happened on Sunday in Minnesota?
1: Yeah, you know what? I mean, it's the nature of sports in general sometimes. I mean, you look like... You know the the worst team on planet Earth one week and then the next week you come back and you look great. I mean the Bills there is no reason to believe that they were going to go anywhere or do anything at all this year, uh, especially given the way that they played the first two games. It was kind of a carryover from the preseason, and then you know you come out you lose forty seven to three to the Ravens and you can't figure out who the quarterback is. You got a choice between a guy that won the job in training camp and whether or not he deserved to have the job, and then the the young hot rookie who was unproven and and really had not played all that well in the preseason, certainly not well enough to earn that job. So, you know, you look at that game and the chargers come back and they make it look easy. They score uh, 28 points in the first half and they're just going to roll. And it's kind of an embarrassment. So you're, you're going to a game like Minnesota and the Vikings, you know, by all accounts, including my own, you know, really had high expectations for them going into the season. Now, some people were calling them a Super Bowl team. And, you know, I certainly thought that they were a playoff team and, or would go deep into the playoffs. So you're expecting yet another blowout. You have Josh Allen making his first road start of his NFL career, and he's going into a, a place that's passionate about football. It's going to be really loud. And, of course, what happens in sports, it's the total opposite. Right. You know, the Bills, they, they, they score in the first series, and uh, the place quiets down. The defense, which had been absolutely awful for the first two games, you know, goes to Minnesota and starts dominating, and they force fumbles. And the next thing you know, it's seventeen nothing, and then it's twenty-seven nothing, and everybody's looking at each other like, you know, what the hell just happened here? Okay. Uh, I, you know, I was as surprised as anybody else. You can't figure this league out sometimes.
0: What's this team like to cover so far for you?
1: Well, I've been covering it from afar.
0: Okay. You know, the
1: yeah. a lot of these guys, uh, you know, a lot of these guys I I know and have been around, you know, from from last year. But I have not seen much of them this year at all, other than the way that a lot of people are seeing them. The Bills did not give us credentials. Oh, okay. So for this season, so um, you know, we had the radio show on 1270 The Fan, and uh, you know, we asked for credentials. They were declined, I guess, because uh, uh, we missed a deadline. I don't know exactly, but we we uh, you'd have to ask them. Uh, we're as confused as anybody else, but. Um, I know the request went in before the season started. May may have been after the deadline. You know, it doesn't take that much to give us a credential. Uh, and we're also working for, you know, this website called the Buffalo Maven, which has done very, very well. Both have done very, very well. We're really happy with both things. And, you know, the Buffalo Maven was not uh, accredited for, for credentials. So uh, here we are looking at it like, you know, like everybody else is from the outside in, but having inside knowledge. So it's a little bit of a different perspective. Um, it's kind of, you know, sometimes I think when you get too close to the situation, uh, you're not seeing things as clearly as you might when you take a step back. But, you know, obviously we'd rather be in there than
0: not. Right. So I, I, I didn't realize that. So I'm, I'm wondering, you know, for both you and your colleague on the site, Jerry Sullivan, uh, you both longtime former Buffalo News columnists who were like in the building, who were at at, at games and in the locker room what's that, you know, how do you try to, uh, do? You, how do you change, how does that change how you cover, how you write, how you observe? I mean, kind of what's it like to cover it, you know, from your living room or from wherever you're watching it rather than in person? What challenges does that present to you? And what opportunities does it prevent, present to you guys as columnists?
1: Well, I mean, you know, as a columnist, you're always looking at things in a different, slightly different way anyway, right? So you're not in there, you're not on the beat, you're not Sitting there, you know, trying to find out the latest uh, on injuries, and you're not, you know, spending a lot of time on that. What you are doing is that you're, you're taking a look at the big picture, and you know, even when you are looking at the TV, you can still understand what the big picture is. You understand Buffalo. You understand the Bills. You know, there's a combined what, uh, probably 50 years of experience uh, of covering this team. So it's not like uh, it's our first lap around the track here, right? You know, the fact that we're not there in person. You know, it doesn't really matter. When the Bills were on the road for the last several years, you know, I wasn't traveling with them anyway. I was writing while watching, you know, TV and writing columns. This is kind of a shift, I guess, a little bit in the way that newspapers are doing business or have done business. And, um, you know, they're trying to cut costs everywhere that they can, I guess. Um, So, yeah, it is a little bit different. You don't have access, uh, you know, that you'd like because sometimes you just want to sit down with a guy and talk to him and get to know him a little bit. And find out what makes him tick, or there might be something in his background that you find intriguing and interesting, and something that you can put in a column. So, but the way that the games are so structured now, you know, a lot of the interviews, they're all in, it's a group effort almost. There's very little one on one. A lot of that stuff goes on a quote sheet anyway. We have access to that stuff. We're just not there in person, but we're still able to do our jobs just fine.
0: Right. And I, I was going to say, like, obviously the access is the, probably the obvious, uh, limitation that you guys have and not being able to ask questions in interviews and kind of get to know guys. Like you said, but I'm wondering as you do this, and you, you said you did this for the last couple of years, you know, what column writing opportunities, I guess, does this kind of open up? Like, does it, does it let you write in a, in a way that you find that you like that's, you couldn't write when you were there or found it difficult to write when you were in the building. Is it that, like you said, that forest for the tree situation?
1: Yeah, I think sometimes that you might actually have a, a clear view of things. You know, you're not being skewed by anything that somebody's saying or there could be a collection of things that people are saying. And it's always hard to decipher the truth anyway a lot of times in these situations. To me, Brian, it's, it's really their loss. You know, one of the things that I really like to do is I like to write feature stories, in-depth feature stories, personality pieces, and things of that nature. And, you know, it's really hard to get to know some of the newer guys on this team when you're not in the locker room getting, you know, talking to them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, those are usually positive pieces. They, they're you know, almost always are positive pieces. And, you know, those are things that I really appreciate doing, you know, getting into somebody's background and family life and find out what makes them tick. And, and and just where they came from and, you know, what did their parents do for a living and and all these things that that I'd like to ask players. And, uh, you know, I just, I, I, everybody has a story and that's the way that I look at it. And I find everybody's story interesting, no matter where they came from or no matter how uh, they got to where they are now in the NFL, you know, it's always an interesting road. So, Mm -hmm. you know, the fact that we're not able or I'm not able to sit down and, and do those, I think is unfortunate. And uh, again, you'd have to ask them exactly why we haven't
0: been allowed in. I I, I think it's odd. Mm-hmm. So i kind of playing off of that and speaking. You can speak uh, both uh, bit wide angle, and you can kind of maybe pick an individual player for this question. But what's what's the inter- what are the interesting stories about this year's Buffalo Bills team that you're seeing after three games?
1: Well, I think it, it, it's interesting that you have you know, they went into the season looking to develop their young players. I don't think that they were all that concerned or all that optimistic about their overall record. You know, that was something that I learned from Sean McDermott last year, what I did, in fact, sit down with him. You know, he explained to me that, look, you know, the word that he used was warts. You know, this team has a lot of warts is what he was saying. And what he was doing was trying to get his message to me and therefore out to the public that, you know, this was going to be, they're going to take a step back this year in their record. Um, They understood that they had to uh, continue to retool their roster and address some of the flaws that they thought they had in personnel. So I don't think that they had really high expectations record wise. And I think that they understood that they're going to go after a quarterback and it was going to be somewhat of a development year. At that time, they didn't know that they were going to get Josh Allen. You know, they didn't even know that they were going to get the seventh pick overall for that matter. And let alone, you know Tremaine Edmonds, the the middle linebacker, who's such a young great uh, prospect at at number sixteen. So, you know those guys weren't in place, and once they they did draft them, I think they really started to think: look, if they can get through this season, you know, with a competitive record, or even if they go zero and sixteen, but those two players develop, then, you know, they're going to be in good shape. You could call that a success on a certain level because they were able to get you know all the wrinkles out of the quarterback, or at least get him through one season in the NFL and he can adjust to the game and read defenses and have all that practice time and and whatever. And the same thing for for Edmonds, who's really the quarterback of the defense. You know, he would have a chance to to read offenses to see what tendencies are, you know, from team to team and what players like to do, and and also adjust to the speed of the game. You know, the NFL is a thinking man's game, and yet, you know, when you're playing it, you almost can't think, right? Mm-hmm. So you have to mold those two things together, and and really, a lot of times you see rookies in the NFL. That's what that year is about. Well. You know, if the bills were were going to be about you know developing those two players and other young players, then this was going to be be a season to do that because they weren't all that concerned about the record anyway.
0: Um, um, well, you, you've kind of, you mentioned the new website, which is great. I'm really enjoying, uh, what you guys are doing with it. Um, and, uh, but I wanted, and you've kind of alluded to your time at the Buffalo News, but I wanted to go back a little bit and kind of talk about, uh, your career path and where you started out. Cause I know we have similar small town journalism, very similar small town journalism roots. Um, but kind of talk about how you got to the point you're at today.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, for me, I started at the very bottom you couldn't get any more uh, lower, I guess, on, on the totem pole than I was. And I I started Buffalo News getting coffee for uh, all the guys that were working uh, as copy editors and the women that were working as copy editors. I was answering the phone and I was taking bowling scores and, you know, doing horse racing agate and really, you know, elementary stuff as I, uh, you know, got into the business. I mean, you couldn't be more basic and you couldn't be lower than I was, but I loved it. And, uh, you know, I couldn't wait to be in that atmosphere. And I just, I just took to it. I was hooked almost from the beginning, almost from the first day, just being around sports and sports writers, guys that I knew, uh, from, from reading the paper growing up and, um, and and then suddenly working with them. So it was really cool for me. I, you know, I was fortunate enough to, uh, get an internship out of that. And then, uh, you know, and I worked as a part-timer for a while, uh, you know, when I was still in college, you know, how many kids in college are able to work at a newspaper collecting, you know, real money, um, you know, while they're still in school. So it was, it was a tremendous experience for me. I I loved it. And uh, it really set me off on a, on a path of journalism that, you know, takes me to, to where I am right now. And, you know, look, I, I started small. I was, I I wasn't good enough to work in the Olean Times Herald uh, main office,
0: you know, in Olean.
1: I was off in Wellsville collect, you know, collecting notes about, uh, you know, motorcycle deer accidents and, you know, watching over the Wellsville school board and whatever, you know, fights were going on at the local tavern or whatever. I mean, it was really an interesting experience. And then I was there for a while, and then I went to uh, the Olean Times-Herald, and, you know, I was there for, what, I think six or eight months or something like that, and then they had cut back. They cut back a third of their newsroom back then. And, uh, you know, you saw a lot of good people walk out the door in one Mm -hmm. day. I was, I was one of them. So that was really an introduction to, you know, just how tough this business can be at times. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was, I was fortunate enough. Uh, you know, I think I had a job. I don't know if it was the next day or the next week, but, um, you know, the, the Niagara Gazette called and, and gave me a job. This happened, I believe in the, in the late spring or early summer. And then, uh, and then I was working for the Niagara Gazette very short time after that, a couple of days a week. And then, uh. I was there for a little while, and then I uh, I hooked on with the AP as a temporary employee, and, and that really is what what turned things for me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I was in a situation there with, with the Associated Press where, you know, you, you had to write every day, and you had to cover all kinds of different things. It could be general news, it could be sports, and I was a general news guy. I covered politics in Albany and, and Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and then I moved to Philadelphia, and... And, and really uh was doing a lot of, of news uh, reporting there which i think really contributed to my uh, career at some point uh you know they needed a sports guy knew a lot about sports and uh so i started to do a little bit more sports writing and then of course you know fortunately for me there was an opening in buffalo you know my hometown a place where that i knew better than anybody else in our company and i understood sports and the history of, of buffalo sports and uh you know, it was it was a perfect match for me. So, you know, it, it, it was a, it was an outstanding experience working for the AP. I would not have traded that for anything. But it was hard work. And uh, while I was there, um, you know, I mean, we our office was located right in the Buffalo News building. It's not there anymore, but at the time, you know, I was about literally like maybe seven or eight, ten feet from the sports department that door.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, there was a point where you know, I was doing a good job covering hockey. They were looking for a, a hockey writer and, uh, I literally picked up my stuff. I mean, kids say literally these days and they don't, they don't <laughs> understand the word literally, but I, I literally picked up my stuff and, and took probably 15 steps and put it down on a different desk in the same building. And I, and I was working for an entirely different company. So,
2: <laughs>
1: so, yeah, so that was, you know, it was, it was interesting. And, uh, and next thing you know, I'm, you know, I'm covered in team going to the Stanley Cup Finals. It was, right. It was an awesome experience.
0: And so, and then you obviously became a columnist at the News. And I'm wondering, and we talked about this in in the uh, in in that great forgotten episode of two weeks ago. But that transition from being an AP writer—that's very straight down the line. You said you did a lot of news reporting, kind of a lot of you know, kind of straight traditional inverted pyramid journalism, to move into a situation where you're writing more columns and doing more opinion pieces. Um, And you mentioned that 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 news background affected, uh, helped you out in your later years. And I'm wondering if you could talk about how that, how that did help you out when you became a columnist. Yeah,
1: I think that it's really important to become a reporter first and understand that, you know, you have to have the information in order to be a good columnist. You know, you don't just pop off uh, without having those, those opinions are, they're all based on reporting. It's not, you know, we rolled out of bed one day and said, Hey, I think I'll write something nice about this guy or something negative about this guy. It's all based on reporting. And I think if you're a good reporter first, it's really going to help you as a columnist. It is a different, it is a different form of writing, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not to say that you, know, you don't develop opinions when you are working for a place like the Associated Press or you are on the beat uh, covering the Sabres. And we had a you know I, world-class Hall of Fame columnist, Jim Kelly, that I was learning from. I mean, we were one hell of a team and uh, and I was kind of, uh, you know, on the beat and, and collecting all the details and doing all those things, but it wasn't like I wasn't forming opinions about the team that I was covering. You do.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I just think that you evolve as, as both, you know, you, you gain perspective as you get older. You evolve as a writer, and I think when you have perspective and you become a better writer and you're a good reporter, then you have the makings of what could
0: be a good columnist. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jim Kelly, he is you know and you said hall of famer in literal and every other sense i mean to be able to read him growing up like you did and you know, it's one of those things you don't realize how good he, you ha- we had it in buffalo uh with him as the hockey columnist and i'll never forget he gave the me the piece of column writing advice that i still say to every every column writing class i do uh that i teach now and it's uh don't write what you think write what you know and i just that that's such a that's left such a mark on me i think i had asked him about uh, the incident uh, when Dominic Hasich came after him and like ripped his shirt. I forget the exact details. He had, it was about the Ted oh, Neele and feud back in the late nineties. I remember
1: the details. Okay, um, because I was I was the one you know you know breaking up the skirmish. Uh, <laughs> if, if Jason Daw and I will forever uh, be linked in that because Dominic Hashick, uh you know, went after Jim and I was walking right next to Jim and and Jason Daw and I grabbed Dominic Hasich together and kind of. Uh, Steered him, uh, I guess would be one way to put it, uh, toward toward one of the exits. And, uh, I mean, he was making a huge mistake. You know, you don't want to see something like that happen. Uh, but, yeah, I, look, what Jim Kelly, he was right about that. And Dominic Kashuk later apologized to me in, in an effort to get it to him that, uh, you know, it was one of the biggest mistakes of his career, if not the biggest mistake of his career, that he was wrong. He was wrong mm-hmm. to approach it that way. And the fact of the matter was, was that Jim was dead on his reporting was dead on. right. And, you know, there were guys in there that were questioning whether or not he was injured, his own teammates, you know, they were not happy with him. There was a story that came out later, you know, it was about Matthew Barnaby and Brad may. And and the question was which one of those guys, you know, was going to get to him first because they were so upset with him uh, and, and not being willing to play. And, mm-hmm. uh, Dominic Kashuk was an interesting guy. And, you know, he was one of those athletes and there are some out there, just an absolute brilliant, brilliant, uh, player. He was the absolute best practice person I've ever been around, which explains his greatness.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, for the people that remember watching him play and they see all those slinky first fine saves and you know miraculous things, I saw those things 27 times in practice. I mean, it, it, was, it was almost felt like it was rehearsed, and, and yet it wasn't. He was just prepared for everything. Having said that, he was also somebody that needed to be completely right physically in order to go about his craft. And I think because of that, you know, I didn't doubt whether or not he had a knee injury. The question was whether or not he could have played through that injury.
0: Right.
2: You know,
1: in a sport hockey where guys get stitched up in between shifts and go right back out there, they didn't understand that he couldn't deal with whatever pain he was dealing with to get out there and play. Mm -hmm. And he was Mm -hmm. such a perfectionist. I think that that was his problem that, you know, he wasn't totally right. And if he wasn't totally right, he wasn't going to go out there. And embarrass himself first, or hurt his team second. But mm-hmm. you know, look, Dominic Kashuk at his worst it was better than
0: anybody else that they had. So, right. you know, anyway. No, that's sorry, a, I get off
1: on the <laughs> there, but that's what happened.
0: No, I had forgotten. It's funny because I had forgotten the details of uh, of the story that led to led to the column that led to the confrontation. Um, but I, I, and I'm wondering too. Um, w- you know, when, when you look back at, at that era in Buffalo sports, I mean, that was coming right off of the Super Bowl era and you had the, the Sabres great run of the late nineties and kind of into the middle of the two thousands. And, and you've been, you, you chronicled so much of it. And what makes Buffalo for you, having someone who's grown up there and worked there for so long, what makes it such an interesting sports town and an interesting town to work in as a sports media person?
1: Well, I think now it's about the chase. It is about, will they ever win a title here in Buffalo? Can it ever happen? Will they ever win a cup? Can they ever get a Super Bowl? They've been so close, you know. You go to the Super Bowls, and, uh, you know, I was an intern or maybe working part-time at the news when Norwood missed a kick wide right. In fact, I wrote the headline that ended up going into the news <laughs> the next day. Is like a 21-year-old copy editor. Um, <clears> and, you know, before that, as a young kid growing up in Buffalo, and I was a huge big you know, Sabres fan and Bills fan, which is why I know so much of the history now, you know, there wasn't this feeling of doom. It was kind Uh of like, you know, you had heard stories about them winning in the 60s, and in the 70s, they weren't really in the NFL long enough to have any of these feelings that that people have today because, you know, they hadn't lost four Super Bowls. There was a Stanley Cup uh, in 1975 that the Sabres lost to a better team in the Flyers, who I believe repeated the next year, and Bernie Perrant was the goaltender for Philly, and he just played out of his mind, and they, they got beat. But, you know, at that time, the Sabres were in, what, their their fifth year of existence. You're thinking, they're going to win a championship at some point. You were upbeat and positive and optimistic about it. It wasn't really until, until the 90s and the four Super Bowls, I think, really left some scar tissue on this community. And then in 99, you know, you have Brett Hull's skate in the crease, and you're thinking, you know, what's next? I mean, is this place absolutely, you know, doomed? Are they ever going to win anything here? And those, that's when, that's when you started to hear things like, Oh, you know, that, that's such a Buffalo thing to happen, you know, to get so close and, and to fall short. It was, Mm -hmm. that's where that mentality came from. It didn't exist when I was a kid. Right. So I, it it did exist when I was, when I was a reporter and later a, a columnist, you know, so I was there for the evolution of that kind of mentality that kind of, you know, swept over Buffalo. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, certainly in the early two thousands and then you had, you know, home run throwback and the the Tennessee game. And, you know, it just seems like, you know, that was, that was going to be a year where they thought, you know, Hey, if they win that game, they're going to have a pretty good chance maybe to get to the Super Bowl, and they might actually win one. You know, it, it, it was, it was interesting. And so there's, there's a lot of those things that happened. And then what happened after that was, you know, it was the Sabres, uh, you know, Hasek got traded to Detroit, and the, the, the Sabres went down in the standings. And then, you know, the Bills, that's what started their their whole 17-year playoff drought. Mm-hmm. I mean, you didn't know it at the time that it was going to last that long. If you would have told me that they were going to go the next 17 years without making the playoffs, I, I wouldn't have believed you. I mean, I probably would have, you know, changed careers or something. I don't know. <laughs> because it, it, it's, just, it's just such a long time for one team. It's almost mathematically impossible to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they managed, and uh, and and then you know the Sabers too. I mean, you know they had in in oh five oh six, which I think was was really the best opportunity that they've ever had to win the cup. Was a year that they didn't even make the cup.
0: That's they lost uh, the Carolina. Was, they lost the Carolina in the in the conference finals that year. Was that it?
1: They did, and what happened was, um, you know, I remember speaking to Jay McKee mm-hmm. uh, the, the the night before they had uh game seven, the Sabres win game six and they send the series back to Carolina. And I remember talking to Jay McKee at his locker and, you know, he had blood running down his leg. And I was like, Hey, do you want to, you know, address that before this interview continues? I mean, I have a minute or whatever. He's like, nah, you know, it's <laughs> a hockey player. It's okay. Little did we know, you know, he had a nasty infection in there. And that started from his, his old equipment that he had, I think that goes back to junior hockey his old shin pads. And, um, and they lost Jay McKee at a time where they really couldn't lose another defenseman. Right. And, uh, you know, I remember talking to Nathan Pache, you know, before Game 7 of the Eastern Conference Finals. And I had been around that team for how long? Years. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're now on, uh, what, uh, six, seven years. Um, I was a columnist covering the team at the time. And it was the very first time that I ever even met Nathan Pache. I didn't even know who he was. I knew very little about him. And uh, and in that game against Carolina, I I still remember Rod Brindamore scoring, and I remember Brian Campbell, you know, taking a penalty and and accidentally flipping the puck into the crowd, and and I remember the puck being in Rory Fitzpatrick's feet, and half of the, I could almost hear Buffalo screaming at Rory Fitzpatrick, "It's in your feet, it's in your feet," and then sure enough, uh, I believe it was Brindamore that picked up the loose puck, snapped it home, and and Carolina ends up winning, but. That was a magical team and a fun team to be around. And um, I remember even, you know, going into that game seven, you know, it was it was a lot of nervous energy around, even with the media. You know, you didn't understand exactly who was going to be in the lineup, what was going to happen, um, were they going to let this season get away from them after they got this far. And, and, and before that, you had Jason Pommelville beating Ottawa with a shorthanded goal. And I remember walking into what I expected to be a very, very nervous locker room uh, in the morning skate, and it was they were surrounded around a, a television set, and it was Paul Gosted was sitting there screaming at the TV, and he's like, "Yes!" and he's celebrating, "Yes, I nailed it," or whatever. And I walk up there, and they're watching the spelling bee on ESPN, <laughs> cheering, cheering for whoever when they got the word right or whatever. And I just I shook my head, and I remember thinking, "This is really a special team here." That. You know, the chemistry was just right. And these there they was just enough uh, youthful enthusiasm and, and true professionals, or you know, Chris Jury and Danny Breer and some of the great players that they had on that team. And I remember thinking, man, oh, man, you know, if this thing ends tonight, what a shame it's going to be because, you know, they're the better team. They're better than Carolina. And what happens, Carolina ends up beating them, and Carolina ends up winning the Cup. And, uh, you know, they they swept Edmonton, if I'm not mistaken, and, uh, and I remember thinking throughout that Stanley Cup final, the Sabres get past that Game 7, they, they win the Stanley Cup that year. I, I thought that more than the following year when they actually had the best record in the National Hockey League. I thought the 2005-2016 the was more dangerous than the team that followed, even though the team that followed actually had a better record.
0: Yeah. Um, One note, as I as you were talking about kind of the history of Buffalo sports heartbreak, it's amazing that it was like within this weird, not, like nine year span from Norwood to Home Run Throwback it was ninety one to two thousand. And if it, that that era, like as the Super Bowl run ended ninety four, I think, but that ninety four ninety five, but like that was not a very. It, it feels like looking back, it, like it should have been a longer gap than it really was. It's amazing how much. Because the 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 Brett Hall goal was in that too. So how much kind of how much of Buffalo sports psyche is really built around that nine years?
1: Yeah, it's true. And you know what? I want to correct my age. I guess I would have been twenty three when I was uh, okay, but working part time, so not not a twenty one year old kid. Anyway, no, you're right. I mean, it was one it was one hell of a decade. It was very interesting. They had both teams going on at once. And you had the Bills that were, they were just, you know, a dynamic team that were, they were so much fun to watch with the K-Gun offense and the no huddle. And they were just blowing out teams. And I remember, you know, opposing teams, the Raiders being one of them, that 51-3 to uh, victory for, for Buffalo. You know, They're calling basketball timeouts. But on the other side of town, you had something electric going on. And in 92-93 or 91-92 or both or whatever it was, you had Pat LaFontaine and Alexander Mogilny. You know just playing at the absolute top of their game and those guys were flying around all over the place. They were it was such a a solid uh team and 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 you know there was just so much electricity I think around the community. That's what I remember as much as anything. It was like you know okay the Bills you know they're going to the playoffs. The expectations were high and there was like this euphoria that would sweep through town every time the playoffs started and you know people were were just jumping for joy. It seemed on Mondays, they were nervous on Fridays. They were camping out at the stadium on Wednesdays and they just couldn't wait for the game to start. And, you know, you could just hear, uh, you know, there was like a a buzz that went around as I call it a buzz that would go through town and everybody was upbeat and everybody was, was, was nervous. And, you know, it was almost like they were playing in the game in Mm -hmm. in a way, you know, the fan base was, and, you know, when the football season ended, then, you know, you knew that you had a good hockey team to, uh, to rely on that, maybe they were, you know, finally the the complaints back then was that Sabres had a hard time winning a round of the playoffs. That right. they were always getting knocked out of the first round. It wasn't about making the playoffs <laughs> like right now. You know, they missed the playoffs seven straight years and they finished last. You know, the, the what three times the last five years or whatever. That's that's real misery. Mm-hmm. Back then, people were complaining because they didn't they didn't win a round in the playoffs. It wasn't getting there. I mean, are you kidding? Everybody got there. Of course, they were going to get there.
0: So, so that is yeah so I'm, I'm i'm knowing that and like kind of remembering that from your experience how much did that influence of you know uh color maybe is there is the right word but the column writing and, and, and the column thinking and the reporting and the writing that you did for the past you know 10 years up until when you left the news this year and kind of like rem- kind of like juxtaposing eras of when like you know there was all this electricity around the teams to the past 10 years where they're really you know not only have the teams been kind of terrible but there's been just like no real there there for a lot of these teams so how much does that kind of influence your column writing and the way you kind of approach and look at things i think
1: that i was the ideal or you know there are other people i guess i could have been doing what i was doing but um, I, I was a good person to be writing those columns because not only did I know it uh, just from years of experience in journalism, I felt it as a as a young person growing up in Buffalo. I knew the difference between the two. I remember what good football looked look like. Mm-hmm. You know, I saw and felt the exciting times that came with hockey. And when that kind of disappeared, then it was my job to, I think, reflect that. You know, it was to explain to people that, hey, you know, at once upon a time the standards were a lot higher around here and they should be held to a similar standard you know there there did come a point where I think that people without accepting losing they kind of became comfortable with losing and it was okay and you know as a columnist I, I didn't think that that should ever be okay that all these teams should be held to the highest standard and when they failed to meet them that they were they were they were leaving their fans short. You know, these people were paying good money to go to these games. They had supported them all these years. And I think that the fans deserve more. And I thought that they deserve more from their teams and their owners and their management. And it was important for me to reflect that. Um, I, I, I just thought that the standard should be they should be held to a higher standard. And I thought that part of my role was was to explain to people, look, um, you know, look, these guys, they should be better. Um you know, they, that, that, that fans deserve it. You have, you have some of the greatest fans and it's pro sports and sports anywhere are in Buffalo, New York, and certainly the most loyal. And how about giving them something a little, you know, giving them something back instead of taking their money all the time and, and, uh, and finishing really what would be, you know, there were a lot of subpar seasons in there. It just was unacceptable to be on a, on a lot of different
0: levels. Um, and we and, and it kind of gets into, uh, you know, we've talked about this in the past and, P, and people can read about um, in various places about when you left the news in May. But that kind of plays into it, I think, because, you know, what they, you know, their vision for what a sports section should look like. And, you know, it, it's it's challenging, I think, for everybody, people who run newspapers and columnists and, and people who write for it in that you're I think a lot of times you're very reliant upon fan readership whether it's clicks whether it's subscription model however you make money and that's a whole other, that's like literally my job is figuring that stuff out but i but i but i do wonder like you know you know when you have uh when you're kind of saying a a a message that's probably a little unpopular or that people don't necessarily want to hear i mean how challenging it, was grossly it unpopular, yeah right uh, there were <laughs> there were
1: a lot of things that wasn't a little unpopular. There are a lot of things that I was writing that were that were grossly unpopular. Okay, but they were true. Okay, and you know, I mean, that, that that's what you know. I think I know where you're going, and I'm sorry for interrupting. No, you. and you're please You're trying do. to balance, you know, the idea of are you giving people what they want to read? Well, if they want to read, you know, happy, you know, bunnies and deer in the woods and everything's cool, then you might want to, you know, start reading uh, a sports section from. A, a town that's won a lot of games. You know, I remember in 2005 and 2006 and 2006, 2007, people were accusing me of being a homer that I was too much <laughs> of a cheerleader. When really what I was doing was I was writing what I was seeing. It, mm-hmm. it goes back to, you know, similar to what Jim Kelly said, you know, you write, you know, you write what you, what you know, you know what I mean? Not what you think. And, you know, uh, to me, I have a, a different variation of that, but it's basically the same thing. And that is, I write what I see. Mm hmm. And I think in order to stay true to to myself, in order to stay true to my uh, profession, then that's what you have to do. I'm not going to sit there uh, and and write things that, that, you know, to make people feel better. That's not my job, one. Mm -hmm. And two, you know, I wouldn't want anybody that I respect to come up to me saying, come on. I mean, you know that. You know what the truth is. Why are you doing this? I mean, you're going to now come off like a cheerleader when, when we all can see. You know, people in Buffalo, they don't need to be lied to. They're too smart you know, they don't have to be coddled. They don't need anything to be softened. They're watching the the games too. And, you know, if you're going to get caught up in some social media mob, because people are unhappy and they want to wail at you on social media, by all means, go ahead. It doesn't bother me at all, but it's not going to affect the way that I approach my job. And I'm never going to buckle from that. Um, Now, if that's, that might be unpopular. Well, it's unpopular when the teams are bad. It's not my fault that the teams are bad. So, You know, if you want to see more positive sports writing, get better teams, win more games. It's really that simple. It's just a reflection of what I see and I think of what we see. And, you know, and other columnists have gone through, you know, the the same thing or similar things. So it's really just a reflection of that. It's nothing
0: more. Is is that one of the great misperceptions people have of columnists that you guys want the home team to lose so you can rip them?
1: I, I don't know what people think. I mean, I never thought that way when I looked at other columnists. I just thought that, you know, they're you get paid to have your opinions. And, um, you know, part of what I was supposed to do was bring perspective and opinion and, and, you know, and facts that are based on facts and reporting and insight. And, you know, I was doing those things. So I didn't, I never sat there and, and judged other columnists, not when I was growing up. And uh, certainly not when I got into this business. I mean, you know, I respect those guys because I understand how hard the job is. And, you know, there's only one way to do it in my, in my book. And, uh, look, I don't want to get on a high horse about all this stuff, but I, there is a level of, I need to look in the mirror and be able to say that, you know, I went about this job the right way. And, you know, whether or not that upset some fans, well, you know, they were getting the truth or at least my version of the truth. And I would hope that you at least, even if you don't agree with me, you would at least respect the position that I was in. And, uh, you know, a lot of it is
0: reflective of the teams that I was covering. Um, switching gears, and it's a question that I ask everybody. I asked you two weeks ago, so I'll ask you again. Um, uh, what's the best thing that you've read lately?
1: Um, and what was my answer two weeks ago?
0: That's a good I'm question to think. I'm, I'm trying to remember too. You did say you wanted to read more books. I'm hoping you've read more books. Yeah, in the well, two I've weeks. been
1: diving into a bunch of different books. You know, the people that I admire, Mike McCarroll is one of them. Uh, he's a great New York Post writer and a dear friend of mine. He's written several several different books, and uh, so I've been kind of like you know, chipping into this book and taking a look at this book. And, and I really need to sit down and read, you know, entire books. I, I just have done a poor job of that. I, you know, I read so much stuff online and I'm writing so much that, mm-hmm. uh, and talking so much on the radio that, you know, sometimes you just want to get away from that. Right. right. So, other people, I think that they go to work, and then they come home, and they sit home and read, but when you're reading all day, sometimes you just want to, you know, come home and vegetate.
2: Right. <laughs>
1: you know, i watch watched the History Channel or whatever I'm watching on TV. It's not always even about about sports, not at all, And uh, but I'm, I am reading constantly, and I'm just reading a lot of, of different things on a lot of different subjects, and some of it is, is, is stuff that might apply to what I'm doing today, and some of it... Might be just you know some magazine article in the New Yorker, or, or you know just
0: some piece that I think is really well written that has absolutely nothing to do with sports. Hmm. Uh, Bucky, uh, with the, with the new website, where can people find it, and what should they know about it?
1: Yeah, well, they should know that it's, first of all, it's called Buffalo Mabin. Um, it is one of the channels of the overall larger corporation of Maven, and uh, that is an arm of uh, the Sports Exchange, which has been around for you know three decades. I did work for them years and years ago when i was a young uh, beat reporter working at the buffalo news and there was a little bit of a side job that i had you know just collecting notes and quotes and facts and figures and stuff for the sports exchange well you know the the industry has evolved so much and so much it now is about it's about video and you know there's a lot of uh, aggregation that goes on you can it, it i call it a one-stop shop for for buffalo bills football and you know, we'll, we're going to see where it evolves. It may evolve into a one-stop shop for Buffalo sports. It's a really interesting concept. You know, it allows, you know, Sully and I, Jerry Sullivan and I to continue, you know, writing columns and adding our perspective. It was the one thing that, you know, when we left the newspaper business that we knew that was still wanted, um, you know, it's funny that a lot of the same people that complained about us in social media, uh, also were the same people that were missing us when we were gone. And, uh, <laughs> And I and I and I know that you know I had enough people asking me you know where can I read your stuff and I know Sully had a, a similar experience and you know there was certainly a demand for that I think that people you know when we got away from the business a little bit that they respected the fact that we were willing to tell the truth and and uh, even when sometimes it wasn't the most popular thing in town at least they knew what they were going to get from us and um, I don't know that you can say that about everybody in our industry these days and i'm not just talking about buffalo and talking about newspapers in general that have kind of buckled to uh to, to to teams and to access and to and to other things and i'm sorry for getting off on a tangent but um you know the buffalo maven that allows us to do those things and uh it allows us to to make you know the most use of a lot of different mediums at the same time it might be video that uh you know, we're grabbing ourselves or we're, you know, we're, we're jumping on YouTube and giving some people something to watch. And if they want to read, well, they can read Sully or they can read me or they can read, you know, the work of other people in the area that might have a different viewpoint about the bills. And, you know, it, it, it's really neat, you know, you know, for the longest time, I think you would look at the Buffalo news and you would never see like, you know, there would be a story, a link in the Buffalo news website to say the Rochester paper or the Olean paper or whatever, because, you know that's competition, and I don't look at it as competition. Mm-hmm. I look at it as, as, as you know, here's my viewpoint, and here's a viewpoint of, of somebody else that might be uh, covering the same game, and 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 they might have a, a different outlook than we have. And I think that's it, it leads to debate. I, I I just think it's healthy and and good, and and a little bit more you know complete. It's mm-hmm. it's a little bit more
0: comprehensive uh, than what I was doing before. Awesome. Well, best of luck to the site. I'm I'm enjoying it, and uh, thanks for joining me for a second time.
1: Thanks, Brian. Yeah, it was my pleasure. I just want to make sure that everybody's listening to 1270 The Fan, too. We have our radio show from 9 until noon uh, on weekdays. We are having an absolute blast in that forum, too. Uh, it's a lot of fun. And, and, again, I mean, it's what we're saying is, listen, you know, it's straight talk. We're not giving people. We're not, you know, paid by a rights holder. We're not working for a rights holder. And, you know, you don't have to have any kind of filtered opinions. You can just come to us if uh, if you're looking to get it straight. So we take pride in that, we're going to continue to do that, and uh, and I hope that people respect it. So, so far, so good. Both things have done very, very well.
0: As always, thanks for listening to The Other 51. You can find show notes for this episode and all our episodes at sportsmediaguide.com on the Other 51 tab. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. I can highly recommend Overcast for this. Our theme music is by Ellie Moritz.